and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amanda. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about marriage, love, and Star Wars, but mostly it's about Star Wars. Kevin, in keeping with our theme of going through the movies, we're now to the one that pretty much is the worst two and a half hours of anybody's time. Yeah, this is probably the worst Star Wars movie until episode eight came out. Um, Not much more to say about it than that. It's been a great podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs> well, on that note, no, we're actually going to tell you the stuff that you might have missed because you were cringing from so many of the cringeworthy scenes in Attack of the Clones, or as we affectionately like to refer to it as Attack of the Clowns. So this is an overview here. Of what we've got is it's another three-act play. Uh, we go from politics to civil war. We learn about the Sith. Um, there's just some terrible acting um, that's allegedly a romance scene after scene. But we'll, we'll get into it. So, Kevin, you want to take us from the top? Well, actually, before we get into the acts, I just want to give a viewing tip to anybody who hasn't seen this movie. This movie has a lot of cringeworthy scenes. And every single one of them are scenes where Padme and Anakin have dialogue together. So if you've never seen this movie or you want to watch it again and not face the pain, anytime you see those two on the screen and they're talking to each other, just skip it. Just skip it and you will. there's only one thing that you'll miss. We'll talk about it. It's in Act 2. Listen to this podcast and then skip those scenes and you'll be better for it. Agreed. And if you see Padme and Anakin on the screen with other characters, let the scene roll. But if it's just the two of them, go ahead and fast forward. That's right. All right. So Act 1, we're on Coruscant. Tell us about Coruscant, Kevin. Yeah, so Coruscant is the, is the capital of the Galactic Republic. The entire planet's one giant city. We visited Coruscant in Episode 1, um, where uh, the Jedi Temple is, where the Senate is. And the movie opens with um, Padme, who is now a senator instead of the Queen of Naboo, um, arriving to take a crucial vote in the Senate. And there's a little bit of subterfuge because they're worried about an assassination attempt and their worries are validated when her main ship explodes upon landing. Right. And so she has another decoy, which we we learned about her using in episode one. Uh, And her trusted decoy, was it Dorme? Corday. Corday. Okay. Corday is blown up. And so obviously she, Padme feels bad about that and is all shook up and so the arrival party shows up and then they move in to go speak with uh chancellor palpatine that's right and there's a scene in chancellor palpatine's office where he's kind of talking to the jedi and they they reveal to him that their uh the dark side is clouding their ability to do some of the things that the jedi normally do um, and then Padme arrives and immediately Yoda turns to her and, and says how grateful he is. He says it warms his heart to see her alive. And she responds with, does anybody know who did this? <laughs> it's a very entitled conversation. Um, you know, this is like the head Jedi. He's, you know, 750, 800 years old, 850 maybe. Something like that. Yeah. He's an old man. He's put in his time. He's the head of the Jedi Council, and she immediately talks down to him. She's one of thousands of senators. I think that's a little bit entitled and kind of, uh, we'll, we'll get into the ruling class that is the uh, legislators in the Republic uh, 
treating everyone else around them like lesser. And we'll get into that later, but this is kind of the first step of that. That's right. But through a, a conversation and, and Palpatine's suggestion, it's basically decided in this meeting that um, Padme requires Jedi bodyguards. And furthermore, that Obi-Wan Kenobi, who she's met in her adventures in episode one. By, by the way, this is about 10 years after episode one. So um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, who she knows, and his Padawan, Anakin Skywalker, who she also knows, of course, um, are assigned to be her bodyguards over her objection, but with the insistence of Palpatine. And this is like one of the few times in the whole movie and really in this whole trilogy that Yoda looks like he kind of knows that something's up. He gives Palpatine the side eye when Palpatine suggests this because it's an overreaction to an assassination attempt to put two Jedi on the case. Um, and he seems very insistent about it and very specific about it. And Yoda seems to think it's a little bit fishy, but we really don't get into any other information about like what Yoda's thinking or why. Um, but it is like his one, his one sort of insight into what may be coming down the line. Right. And I, I think it's a reflection of Palpatine is aware of the feelings Anakin has for Padme. He, his heart's like bursting out of his chest. I, I mean, he's where it's just, it's really embarrassing for him. It's embarrassing for anyone who's ever had a crush on someone. Don't behave like Anakin. Please just don't do it. It's not good. Not great. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, Palpatine is aware of that and he looks to exploit that. And, you know, if you're an evil mastermind, this is, you know, the right way to go about it. Absolutely. Okay, so now she's got two highly qualified bodyguards. And what happens after that? So they meet her. There's a, there is, a, and please, please skip this whole sequence. This is one of the sequences where there's another character in the room where she and Obi-Wan and kind of her team are all talking and they get into this whole thing and just skip it. Don't worry about it. But he acts in a very embarrassing way when he sees her. And then they talk about their relationship in terms of like, she says she'd always think of him as a little boy from Tatooine, which as the movie progresses, you start to wonder what that's about. Um, oh, gosh. But basically, long and short of it is they have some interactions and then they decide, she decides to set herself as bait. So she goes to bed. Um, R2-D2 is sort of watching her room and Obi-Wan and Anakin have a little conversation in the living room while they wait for somebody to try to assassinate her again. And guess what? They were right because um, this uh, assassin named uh, Zam... Uh, sends a droid with some sort of millipedes that are poisonous or something to her room for some reason, and they try to kill her. So I don't know a lot about killing people, but this just seems overly elaborate and easily fallible. Like, yeah, if, if why not just shoot her then? Like, right. I mean, like, so Zam has a spaceship and a long-range rifle, which she uses in the subsequent chase scene to shoot the droid that Obi-Wan Kenobi is riding on from, like, really far away. And the and uh, Padme is sleeping in a room with, like, an open window. So why not just fly up next to the room and shoot her through the window? I don't know. Like, this is, like, the whole thing's in, unnecessarily complicated, but... The Jedi sense these critters that are about to kill her. Um, Anakin jumps in, lightsabers them, boom, boom. Obi-Wan literally jumps out of a like 150th story window, jumps onto this droid that delivered the critters, and then we go on an insanely long chase scene where they try to catch the bounty hunter that did this. So this chase scene rivals the length of the pod race in episode one. Please feel free to skip through the vast majority of it. You're not really missing much, except 
that Anakin is strong with the Force. He can sense things. We also learn that there's a good place that he learned his uh, rash behavior. It's from Obi-Wan. He tends to act rashly as well. And, you know, they both just abandon Padme. Like, what if there's two assassins? Right. Right, like they're they're doing terrible bodyguard work because you're you're absolutely right. I mean, her official bodyguards are now alerted at this point, but it does seem like a, a pretty good strategy would have been to like decoy bo- deco- decoy attack her once, and then come back with a second round attack, which is like not an uncommon assassination strategy. Furthermore, it's really interesting in the whole throughout the chase scene and in subsequent scenes, Obi Wan is is. Um, he is on Anakin's case about being rash and not thinking things through and take a beat and slow down when he was the one who started the whole sequence by jumping out a window and catching a droid. So there, you clearly see some friction between Anakin and Obi-Wan in this scene. And you also see some of the weakness in Obi-Wan's teaching. He says a lot of things and he coaches a lot of things, but he does not do the things. That, that's very true. Um, so stop the fast forwarding when you see them get to a bar and watch this on regular speed at this point they walk into a bar that is kind of seedy there's some gambling there's some weird characters at the bar and i think that this is an interesting scene in which we've got the assassin who we learn they had been chasing thinking it was a he but it's actually a she so now they're they're looking for a particular type of person uh, they also think that it might be a changeling. So there's, you know, a little bit of a extra element of surprise there. And Obi-Wan says, you know what, I'm going to go to the bar and get a drink. And Anakin starts pacing around. And that kind of reminds me of the parallel in episode one in the Duel of the Fates, where you've got Qui-Gon who takes a knee and just starts meditating. So maybe Obi-Wan's not taking a knee and meditating, but he decides to take a beat and slow down. So at least he's making progress towards being a Jedi master and being the more responsible one here. Yeah, I, yeah, that's actually a really great point. That's a great parallel. It's also possible he just wanted a drink. <laughs> Quite possibly. Because he seems like that kind of guy. But, um, but yeah, so Anakin kind of goes stalking around the bar and we have this sort of... Um, you know, this little suspenseful sequence. And it ends with uh, Zam is actually sneaking up on Obi-Wan. She draws her blaster to shoot him in the back and he whips around and cuts her arm off, which is a very Obi-Wan move, cutting someone's arm off in a bar. We've seen that before. We have indeed. Yeah, you know, there's somewhere he learned it. Yeah. Yeah. So they managed to capture the assassin and they're trying to get her to speak. And instead of taking care of business in the privacy of the bar they decide to go into the open air in the back alley outside of the bar where the assassin is assassinated by another assassin that's right and you know again very predictable um in this case they see a uh, a bounty hunter in mandalorian armor uh shoots her in the neck with a toxic dart and she dies fairly quickly without revealing any information so now they know that there's a mandalorian armor bounty hunter they've got a toxic dart and they know that the um, someone has is really committed to assassinating uh, Senator uh, Padme Amidala. Right, and they don't want to leave any evidence behind. The only evidence they leave behind is that toxic dart, which Obi Wan ultimately knows some sources. So he goes into town and he talks to the guys that he knows at a diner and. 
I don't even know why we have that scene other than to show that Obi-Wan is kind of well-connected below the Jedi level. He's got a lot of connections. Yeah, that's right. There's a there's actually a deleted scene on the DVD that sort of shows... It's, it's actually a pretty good bridge, and I'm not sure why they took it out of the movie, where Obi-Wan takes the dart to analysis droids in the Jedi library and asks them to analyze it. And they basically say... Nope. Yep. This dart is uh, doesn't exist, and he's like, it clearly exists. You're holding it, and they're like, well, then it must be custom made by one person. Has nothing to do with anything. And this is our first inkling that somebody's been tampering with data in the Jedi library. But you're right. It's it's a good show that that um, Obi Wan has a little bit more of human insight. He doesn't trust droids. He doesn't trust data. He trusts people. Right. So Obi Wan is gonna go find the assassin. Uh, they are talking with Palpatine. They're talking with the Jedi Council. They're trying to figure out what to do next. And at this point, what what do they decide? They decide that for some reason, um, Padme and Anakin should go back to Naboo and she should hide out in the lake country and that they should travel like refugees so that they're like not on registered transport and I guess no one can track them. And they take R2-D2 with them. And then meanwhile, you're right, Obi-Wan is assigned to go find the assassin. Now it's wild because they like, they board this, they basically board a container ship flying in steerage with other poor people that are trying to go to Naboo, except she's dressed like a full-on senator with her hair up and like lots of luggage and all this. He's dressed more or less like a Jedi, and they have a droid with them, which I presume that, like, droids look, they look pretty expensive. So you would assume that people that are, like, truly refugees can't afford droids. And so they're this weird group of people in, like, the belly of this container ship flying with a droid and with rich people clothes, and it does not make any sense. Yeah, just because they put on ponchos and shawls does not make them refugees. <laughs> That's so right. it, it just. The whole planning behind this idea is just ridiculous and, you know, just goes again to this film being over the top that it advances the plot in a way that we need to have happen, but it could have done so in such a better way. And if we could go back in time and redo this movie, I I think there would be a lot of ways that it could be improved. Agreed. So now we're into Act 2. You know, the plot thickens here. What what happens, Kevin? Yeah, so Act 2 starts... Now the, the plot lines start to branch out a little bit. So there's there are kind of three main elements of plot of uh, Act 2. So first of all is um, Padme and Anakin. They go to Naboo. They're hiding out in the lake country. And this is where the two of them are more or less left alone, um, except for the servants that are running the house that they're living in. Right. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about Padme Amidala being very entitled. She's basically become a lifelong bureaucrat. So from the time she was the child queen of Naboo, over then she served two terms. Now she's a senator and she's living the life of luxury. Did she come from an affluent family and fall into this or are these the spoils of her trade? E- either way, it kind of just lends a little bit of insight into the types of people who are running the Republic and how they can be easily corruptible because, you know, they, they've got lake houses and, you know, they're traveling with decoys and they're talking down to the Jedi Master. So Right. And and what's even weirder about it is Anakin seems extraordinarily comfortable with this whole situation. And this is a kid who literally grew up a slave. 
right? And 10 years, 10 years before this, he was a slave on Tatooine. And all of a sudden, like he's hanging out at the lake house. He, they're having a picnic in a field. And at no point does he seem like amazed or uncomfortable. People are, you know, servants are bringing them food and he's just sort of like rolling with it. Um, it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a fast change for him. (laughs) It really is. And the thing that just, we talked about it the other day and it just bothers me so much. So think about you're on vacation, you're at the lake house. Ladies, are you spending three hours putting your hair up? Are you wearing crazy ensembles that require all sorts of underpinnings and under things that you would never otherwise wear? No, you're wearing a casual sundress, maybe shorts and a t-shirt. And the fact that they are not relaxing on their time away at the lake house just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's so uptight. It's so stuffy. It does not seem like the place where romance should bloom. Absolutely. But romance does indeed bloom. So the two of them are, are hanging out in uh, Naboo. They're, you know, sort of building their relationship because it's just the two of them. Um, meanwhile, Obi-Wan Kenobi is off investigating what's going on with uh, this assassination attempt and uh, and everything. And he follows the trail to a planet called Camino. Camino is run by um, cloners. So the Kaminoans are a species that not only cloned themselves, um, they basically reached a certain point in their society and decided they wanted to freeze it right there. So they clone, they clone themselves, and as each generation dies, they replace themselves with an identical match of themselves. That's not weird at all. No, not at all. Um, but they also will clone other uh, sentient beings for profit. So he comes to discover that Jedi Master sifo ordered a clone army for the Galactic Republic some, what was it, some 20 years before? I thought they said 10 years ago. Maybe it was 10 years ago. It was some time in the past. And no one's been there to check on it, but they've kept building clones. And they've got 200,000 mature and trained clone soldiers with a million more in the final stages of training. Which makes you wonder... Have they been getting paid this whole time? Are the senators and the Galactic Republic not paying attention to the fact that this money needs to be going to these cloners? Or is there just so much corruption and bureaucracy amongst the Senate that, of course, these guys are getting paid and no one knows where the money's coming from? Yeah, and it's never made clear, but it's it's one of two things. It's either the last thing you said that it's just so corrupt that nobody notices, or this is part of a literally thousand-year-old Sith plan to take over the galaxy. And the Sith have been a amassing vast, vast fortunes that entire time. So it's entirely possible that they were just paying the Kaminoans under the table and nobody really cared about where the money came from or went to. Right. That That's very true. And I think, uh, you know, you made a good point. This plan is called Camino. And in a very funny scene that I, I think is important to keep in the back of your head for later in episode three is... Obi-Wan is trying to find this planet. He knows he needs to go to Kamino. He goes to the library. The library says, no, there is no such planet. And he's like, that's weird. And he wanders in to see Master Yoda teaching a bunch of younglings. And Yoda lets the younglings kind of dig into Obi-Wan Kenobi just a little bit. And I, I think that's important because it shows that the younglings have a very non-jaded opinion of what happened and they help him find the planet and maybe not necessarily why the planet's been 
missing, but they help him find it. And, you know, he goes along his way. And I think it's important to keep that in mind that these younglings are important in advancing the story and furthermore down the road important in defending some of the story. Yeah, absolutely. So um, on Camino, he finds out that um, the clones are templated off a man named Jango Fett, who happens to be a bounty hunter who has Mandalorian armor. And um, Obi-Wan gets introduced to Jango and they have an oddly confrontational conversation for first time people are meeting. But clearly Jango knows that Obi-Wan is the Jedi looking for him because he killed the assassin and saw him. Um, Obi-Wan suspects that Jango is the bounty hunter he's looking for, so he's sort of on his guard, and they have this very terse and intense conversation. And then Obi-Wan tells the Kaminoans that he's going to head back to Coruscant and report back. Meanwhile, he calls the Jedi Temple, and uh, Mace Windu and Yoda tell him to apprehend Jango Fett, bring him in. And so they have a little bit of a fight, and uh, Jango gets away, but... Um, Obi-Wan is able to put a tracker on Jango's ship. So it's important to note as well that Jango Fett has an unaltered clone of himself that he asked to raise essentially as his son. He names him Boba Fett. So we wind up seeing Boba in episodes uh, five and six of the original trilogy as well. So we, we see this just some really bad acting actually. Yeah, the kid they pick for Boba is not strong. <laughs> no, no, a strong resemblance. I'll give them that for sure. Yeah. But uh, his acting is his acting is a little tough. But that's all right. He's a kiddo. Yeah. We'll let him go. Yeah. So it's important to remember Boba Fett's in there too. Yeah. So um, Obi Wan tracks Jango to a planet called Geonosis. Geonosis is known for two things. One, it has droid factories where they're building battle droids, and two, it's inhabited by um, essentially like giant insect people. <laughs> Um, and so the Geonosians are these kind of, people call them the bugs, but the Geonosians are a, big, a race of insect folks. Um, Obi-Wan plays around on Geonosis for a little while and ultimately gets captured by the Geonosians and uh, the droid army. Right. And on Geonosis, we also see that there is Count Dooku. And so in the opening scroll of the movie, we learn that Count Dooku is this mysterious leader of the separatist movement. And what's he doing hanging out on Geonosis? And so that's why Obi-Wan's been kind of playing around in the background, trying to learn a little bit more. He ultimately, before he gets captured, sends a message out and he bounces it to Anakin and Padme. And they also forward it to the Jedi Council. That's right. So we're going to leave them there for a minute because... That message was supposed to bounce to them at Naboo, and he finds that they're not on Naboo. They're now on Tatooine. Why are they on Tatooine? They're on Tatooine because Anakin had a dream about his mom being tortured, which another thing for you to skip. And really, as soon as you see, there's a there's a scene where um, Anakin and Padme are talking in this dark, firelit room. Also a bad scene. Skip that. Immediately after that, there's a scene with Anakin in a bed. Double skip that. Skip it and never go back. It's so bad. It, it's really, he's having this dream about his mom, but I think Freud would have a lot of things to say about it, the way that his acting interpretation was. It's just not great. Not great. But anyway, he has a dream about his mom being tortured. So he talks to Padme and says, I want to go help my mom. I've been having dreams about her for a while, but I'm, a, I'm not allowed to do it because I have to stay here with you. And so Padme's like, well, I'm going to Tatooine, so you're going to have to come with me. And he, and he flies off to Tatooine with her. And so they visit Watto, who is, if you remember from the last movie, uh, Anakin's former owner. And they ask, where's his mom? Because when they left 10 years ago, 
uh, he owned Anakin's mom. And, and Watto says, uh, I sold her to a guy named Klieg Lars who freed her and married her. Not great. Well, I mean, maybe it's great. We don't know. Like, it's Maybe just, it's great. It, it's really uncomfortable because it's like, okay, it's so great to free a slave, but did you like kind of force her into marriage? The whole thing's just unsettling. Everything that happens on the Outer Rim is, is unsettling as well. And just people's casual acknowledgement of this and just willingness to move forward with that information and i mean padme at no point is she ever really shocked by any of this nor does she really care i think she only was focused on helping the people of naboo yeah um yeah i like to i like to believe in a charitable explanation that like Klieg met shmi skywalker and sort of fell in love with her and then found out she was a slave and then bought her so that he could marry her but it's equally likely that that's not the story anyway they go out to the Lars farm and they meet. And, you know, since we do talk about relationships on here, and we've talked about a few that we don't like. I will say they meet Owen and Baru. Um, so Baru is, or sorry, Owen is Klieg's son and Baru is his girlfriend. Owen and Baru Lars, uh, they end up getting married because they're the people who raised Luke Skywalker. And they're actually like in the entire galaxy, the one normal, solid, like... High school romance turned married, turned adopted a kid, raised that kid right, and then got burned to death by stormtroopers. Right. So there are some similarities in our relationship and a few things that hopefully won't happen. So, <laughs> Yeah, like that ending part. <laughs> yeah, especially that ending part. Um, so you said there was one scene that we needed to make our listeners aware of the conversation between Anakin and Padme that they don't need to watch, but what are, what's a conversation that they have during their adventures together? Oh, that's a great point. So there's one of the scenes and I don't even remember which one, cause I always skip them, but they have a conversation where, you know, uh, Padme being a member of the Senate is a strong believer in democracy and, um, sort of the majority rule. And Anakin is complaining about the fact that the Senate never seems to get anything done. And he says, you know, what would be better would be some sort of system where one person listens to everybody's opinion and then decides and then makes them do whatever they think is right. And she was like, like, like a dictatorship. And he's like, I, I don't know, maybe. And he kind of has this like if the shoe fits look on his face and she seems very appalled and then they both sort of laugh it off. But it's a first look at Anakin feeling like maybe it would be okay to have a different form of government. Right. So she overlooks his willingness to maybe consider a dictatorship, kind of laughs that off. And then they get to Tatooine. They meet Lars and he wants to know where his mom is and he's very insolent and very demanding. Where's my mom? Where's my mother? Where's my mother? And then ultimately finds out that uh, the Sand People took her. And uh, Lars went out with some of the other villagers, would you say? Farmers? Farmers, neighbors, maybe. Humans, anyway, people? Yeah, they went out and they tried to get her back. And instead they lost more people as a result. That's right. So at this point, Anakin says, screw you guys. I'm going out to get my mom. And Padme is just like, okay, but... No one wonders, like, how's he going to do it? If an entire pack of people couldn't go out and bring her back, how is one Anakin going to bring her back? Yeah, that's right. Um, and nobody really... So two weird things about this. Nobody really... Uh, Klieg does say, let her go. She's been gone a month. She's not alive. 
and, you know, points out that he's going to have a hard time getting to her. And then, you know, remember his mission and mandate from the Jedi Council right now is to be Padme's bodyguard. And there's like assassins looking for her. And he's just like, hey, hang out with these folks. They're fine. I'm sure it's great. And he heads off on his little uh, voyage into the desert. Right. So he gets there and he's crouching and he does a really cool jump, which is, I think, you know, kind of a neat thing to just remind us that Jedi are really good athletes um, that they, they use the force because that kind of jump would have killed anyone else. But so he he's spying on the sand people and he finds the hut, the little tent where his mom is being tortured and she's basically been crucified, right? More or less. Yeah. Yeah. That's not great. Nope. So he he cuts her mo- his mom loose and, you know, talks to her. She recognizes this is her son. She says her heart is full. She loves him and she dies in his arms. Yeah. Then things go very wrong for the sand people. And I guess kind of for Anakin, although really there's no consequences to his action. But he slaughters the village very quickly. Just murders everybody. Women, children, dog things, sand people. Kills them all. And then wraps up his mom in a shroud and drives back to Lars's house and starts like working on bikes in the garage and doesn't really say anything about it. Right. So, you know, he, he brings his mom back to Lars and he's talking with Padme and he basically says what he did. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me hug you, you know, and she's comfortable with the amount of murdering he did. And then also, if the Sand People had one prisoner to torture, do you think they had others? And if so, did he just leave them hanging there? Wow, I never really thought about that. Yeah, that's creepy. Yeah, why would they only kidnap this one person? Like, wouldn't they, if they're kidnapping people, yeah, it's reasonable that they've kidnapped other people. And he did not bring back any other people or bodies of other people. Therefore, yep, that's probably a thing. Yeah, not great. No. So Yoda notices this from afar. So Yoda's still on Coruscant. He He senses senses it. Um, And he seems fairly uncomfortable. And he talks to Mace Windu about it. But again, there's no consequence. Like nobody ever, at at no point later, does anybody stop and say, hey, uh, Anakin, what what was that about? He just sort of gets away with it. It, Exactly. And I think that they need to listen to their instincts a little bit more. and they need to trust their feelings. If they're feeling something really negative, they need to act, not necessarily act on it, but they need to talk about it. Don't suppress these feelings because they're going to come back in a terrible way, a.k.a. Darth Vader. Correct. So um, basically, they have a funeral for Shmi Skywalker and they're interrupted in the funeral by R2-D2 uh, alerting them that Obi-Wan Kenobi's pinging a message off them. So now we're back to Obi-Wan. He sent a message that they've relayed to Coruscant about the fact that he found Dooku meeting with the Separatist leadership on Geonosis and that he needs help immediately. Meanwhile, he's been kidnapped and he has a really interesting conversation with Count Dooku. So Dooku basically says, hey, whoa, what are you doing in prison? You don't need to be in prison. You know, you're a Jedi. And Obi-Wan gives him a lot of static. And basically Count Dooku reveals to Obi-Wan that he has learned that a Dark Lord of the Sith has taken control of the Senate, has many senators and most of the bureaucracy in his pocket, and is manipulating events in the Republic. And that's why he created the Separatist movement and joined them. Now, little does Obi-Wan know, of course, that he's the apprentice of the Dark Lord of the Sith and knows this not because he discovered it, but because he's in fact part of it. Um, 
and he mentions that Qui-Gon Jinn, who was um, Dooku's Padawan, probably would have joined the Separatist movement, which Obi-Wan denies. But, you know, if you think about it, it's not unreasonable to think that that would happen. Right. And I think this is something that we'll get into in other podcasts, but the Sith rule of two. So normally, not normally, I guess, just the way that it was for the last thousand years, there's only two Sith at a time, the Master and the Apprentice. And so the idea is that the master will one day be overthrown by the apprentice, but the apprentice isn't going to really overthrow until they know who their apprentice is going to be. So, you know, it's potential that every time Dooku tells pretty much the exact truth to another force-wielding person, that he's potentially looking for his apprentice that he can overthrow uh, Palpatine with. But it turns out not so much. Uh, Obi-Wan cannot be swayed and he thinks Dooku's lying to him. Yeah, which is which is probably like the biggest irony and thing is that this is like this is the part where the bad guy does the speech where they reveal the entire like evil plot and the good guy's like, nah, that doesn't sound right. I don't think that's it. So Obi-Wan sentenced to death in um, this arena. And in the meantime, back on Coruscant, a couple of important things happen. So first of all, through all this, right, you know, they've been sending messages back. So the Jedi Council is aware of the clone army, um, the separatist movements gaining strength. And with Amidala out of the way, uh, Palpatine says, you know, I think we really need the Senate to vote to create an army to fight the separatists, but they'll never do it in time. The only way to get this done would be to give emergency powers to the chancellor. And uh, we get back to that guy, Masa Meda, the big blue guy that we talked about in the last episode. He suggests that maybe somebody should raise that motion on the floor. If only Amidala were here, she would do it. And so hearing this, who does it instead? Our old friend Jar Jar Binks. Yeah, Jar Jar. So Jar Jar hears this and is like, oh, if that's what if that's what Padme would do, that's what I should do. So he goes to the Senate floor and makes a motion to grant emergency executive powers to the chancellor, giving him the ability to raise an army, which conveniently already exists in the form of the clone army. Yeah, this is all way too convenient. Yeah, and it's absolutely set in motion by Palpatine. Like, you got to hand it to him. His plan is nuanced and successful. It really is. So at this point, Yoda, he's going. he says, I'm going to go to Kamino. I got to go talk to these cloners and see what's what. What does he say to Mace Windu? He tells him, go to Geonosis, take whatever Jedi we've got left in the temple, and go to Geonosis and help out Obi-Wan, because we know the Separatist leadership is there. And meanwhile, uh, Padme and Anakin decide that they're closer than Coruscant, so they're going to also go to Geonosis and try to help Obi-Wan. So Geonosis is the place to be. Geonosis is the place to be. And that brings us to Act 3. Yep. So Act 3 starts with uh, Anakin and Padme getting to Geonosis, going through a scene that is super duper unnecessary in a droid factory, and then they get captured by the Geonosians and are also sentenced to die alongside Obi-Wan. Right. So all three of them are put out in an arena to be killed in some kind of glorious epic fashion. And there's a whole bunch of those flying bug natives of geonosis to you know watch this that's right and i will say this is one of there's probably like the best little tiny piece of dialogue in this where they're all being strung up to these poles 
and Anakin sort of reporting into Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan says, hey, you got my message. He's like, yes, we got our message. We sent it to Coruscant, and then we came to rescue you. And Obi-Wan just looks up at his handcuffs and says, good job. <laughs> and it's the most Obi-Wan thing that happens in the whole movie. Right. And so it turns out Padme is very resourceful. She manages to free herself pretty much before either of the two Jedi do, which is either... How, how did she learn that? Why does she have those skills? Or is it just convenient plot there? Yeah, I think it's convenient plot. Like, I don't like, why does she know how to pick a lock? I don't know. It doesn't matter. But basically, the execution starts. Each of them has a big monster beast that's supposed to kill them. And the three of them all use their various powers to uh, ev- evade, escape the monster beasts. And just as they think that um, they're about to all get killed, here come, like, I don't know, maybe a hundred Jedi, starting with Mace Windu holding a lightsaber up to Jango Fett's throat. Right. And so at this point, you know, the good guys were losing, then they were winning, then they were losing, and now it looks like they're going to win again. So, you know, more fighting. The scene just goes on and on. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a really cool visual scene. This is the first time we see a whole bunch of Jedi all fighting at the same time. So the Jedi, you know, the Jedi show up, the Geonosians kind of scatter. They release the droid army into the arena and we see a big old melee between the, um, the Jedi and the droid army with a very unnecessary set of uh, C-3PO little quips in between. I don't even want to get into it. It doesn't matter. Um, and all seems lost, right? A lot of Jedi get killed. More Jedi get killed than I would ex- would have expected to get killed. I mean, there's a lot of droids shooting at them, but like they're they're dropping like flies. There's like 20, 25 of them at the end. Yeah, out of like maybe 200 that started. I mean, like they lose a lot of Jedi in this fight in a way that I was very surprised at. Um, but basically, they end up being rounded up. Dooku gives them one chance to surrender. They say no. And then Deus Ex clone army... Uh, the clone army shows up just in the nick of time with Yoda leading leading the charge and the clone army starts a big old battle with the droid army and this is really the kickoff of the clone war. Right, and there are our Jedi who were keepers of the peace in the galaxy to we will very shortly start hearing them being referred to as General Kenobi, General Skywalker, General Yoda. They're no longer just... Jedi Masters, these guys are commanding an entire army, which, again, there's been peace in the galaxy for a thousand years. So how do they even know how to do this? They they don't. And that's a problem. They're uh, not great at it. <laughs> this isn't good. It's not a good sign for our heroes. No, it's not. Um, so big battle rages. You know, they're trying to figure out how to manage an army. And meanwhile, um, there's a, a transport that Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Padme are on, and they happen to see Count Dooku on a little like motorcycle heading off to a hangar. So they chase after him, and in the middle of the chase, Padme falls out of the, falls out of the transport, and Anakin shouts to put it down, um, go rescue her. Obi-Wan says no. He says, what would Padme do? She'd do her duty, and they continue on to try to confront Dooku. Right, and, and this is where Anakin is just completely forthright with how much Padme means to him, that he's willing to sacrifice everything for one person, which will come into play down the road. And, you know, they, they meet up with Dooku. Dooku is clearly the more skilled uh, force wielder of the three as they're fighting. But we do see a cool lightsaber fight scene in which 
Anakin is using two lightsabers. That's pretty cool. Yeah, dual wielding lightsabers is that is a, a skill that not many people have. It really this fight, even though Anakin ends up losing and losing an arm in the process, he actually demonstrates that he is a very impressive lightsaber fighter. He starts with his usual style. It's a little bit too brash. He gets blasted by force lightning, but then he goes into a two lightsaber style, and then he starts to mimic. Um, Count Dooku style, which is a very esoteric and, and arcane style of lightsaber fighting. And so he shows himself to be a really flexible and adaptable uh, lightsaber fighter. And it just, he doesn't have quite enough experience. Count Dooku has been doing this for a long time. He's probably like, I don't know, like 80 years old at this point. And Anakin is 18. So he's just got more experience and ends up winning the fight, cutting his arm off. And just as he's about to kill Obi-Wan and Anakin, in comes Yoda. Right. And before we get into Yoda, I, you know, just want to let Kevin know I paid attention to the assigned reading that he gave me. And I, I learned that there are seven different lightsaber styles of fighting. And it's unusual for a Jedi or Sith, in this case, to know more than one style of fighting exceedingly well. And the fact that Anakin's able to switch between styles, you know, definitely puts him in a class above the others. But... um you know, in walks in Yoda and he brings in uh, some different skills that we haven't seen before. Yeah, that's right. Also very impressive on the uh, on the no and the lightsaber forms. Uh, I can't name them. That's okay. Most people can't. I think I can only name like three of them. But uh, but anyway, Yoda comes in and uh, Dooku starts th- throwing the force lightning at him and he just absorbs it. And then Dooku tries to throw other objects at him with the force and he just, he deflects them and throws them back and whatever. And they decide to have a lightsaber fight. And this is where uh, the first time we ever see Yoda actually holding a lightsaber and what his fighting style is. And he uses, he uses a form called a Taru. I think it's form six. Um, which is a very dynamic form where he's jumping and flipping and bouncing off things. And the exact opposite of his like sort of slow walking, holding a walking stick kind of Yoda. And it's very impressive. Like you can see what Yoda can do when he's channeling the force for uh, a brief time. Right. And this is one of the things that I said in our first podcast about why I loved Yoda so much is here's this little guy that, you know, you might want to underestimate based on his size and his slowness. But, you know, he might be little, but he most certainly is strong and mighty. And so, you know, I, I think that's something that, you know, is a theme that resonates with uh, definitely a lot of women, but also, um, you know, children and, you know, people of all shapes and sizes that you might not look like what you expect. But if you put your mind to it, if you feel the force flow through, you can do all sorts of incredible things. Yeah, that's pretty great. So that fight ends in basically a draw. Dooku escapes. Um, Yoda, you know, no one is no one is dead. Anakin's down an arm. Um, but one interesting thing that's revealed during that fight is that Dooku was Yoda's Padawan. So if we look at sort of the uh, the chain of lineage of uh, various uh, Jedi that we've encountered in this, Yoda is Dooku's Padawan. Or, uh, sorry, Yoda is Dooku's master. Dooku is Qui-Gon's master. Qui-Gon was Obi-Wan's master. Obi-Wan is Anakin's master. And so all of sort of the key Jedi that we're facing in this all have sort of like a training parental relationship to each other. That is interesting. Yeah. 
I don't know if there's anything there, but it's just interesting. Yeah, maybe it just is to have to, so we don't have to introduce other characters and get into their lineage, and this is just a little bit more straightforward. Or, I mean, Yoda's been around for freaking ever, so it makes sense he's had a lot of Padawans. Yeah, it's probably just a law of large numbers thing, but yeah. So anyway, he escapes, so Dooku escapes, the Clone War is on, the Separatist leadership escapes, um... And so we're, you know, there's really, it's, it, there's not a lot of resolution in this movie, but we jump into sort of an epilogue where we see, you know, this huge army being raised. We see Palpatine's got new powers. We see the Jedi, um, you know, there's a scene in the Jedi council room. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's, it's kind of subtle. They're in the Jedi council room and most of the chairs are missing because a large number of the Jedi Council members were killed in the Battle of Geonosis. I did not catch that. Yeah, so like their chairs are gone. So like we've seen the Jedi already sort of decimated in a way that's not happened in a very long time. Um, And then the one other crazy thing that happens is um, Anakin takes uh, Padme back to Naboo and they secretly get married. Yeah, except they've got two witnesses. They've got C-3PO. They've got R2-D2 watching them. And in a real creepy silver hand robot way, they hold hands and get married. And everything about their relationship is just cringeworthy. And the fact that they can't, like, show his human hand holding her, not just his robot hand. And, And I just felt like the whole thing just... It doesn't scream love. It doesn't scream marriage. It, it just screams creepy, secret shame. <laughs> much, much shame. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, here we are. There are finally some relationships we were able to talk about. Most of them were terrible. Most of them were terrible. I mean, like I said before, the Owen and Baru... Their relationship's pretty solid, even though they only get like half a second of screen time. All the other relationships, I mean, between the training relationships between the Jedi, um, Obi-Wan and Anakin have, you know, he at one point, Anakin says, Obi-Wan, you're the closest thing I have to a father. But then later they call each other brothers and like, it's very confusing what and their deal is. don't forget that when he says that, Obi-Wan says, I feel like you're going to be the death of me. And it's like, that's so cheesy too. Yeah, yeah, not great writing in this. Um, this is this is probably like the worst example of uh, George Lucas writing. I, like I give George Lucas a lot of credit for many of the things he did with Star Wars and coming up with the concept and whatever. The times that he took a very strong hand in writing dialogue, movies suffer. And um, you know, I think in episode, I want to say in episode three, he doesn't do quite as much of the writing. And in episode in Empire and Return of the Jedi, he did less of the writing. But this one, he insisted on being involved in the dialogue, and it just it just hurts. It, it's really brutal. It, it's over the top. And the way that I look at it is, is that if that's how you have your relationships and you talk to each other that way, it's great you're talking, but do better. It's, it's not good. Indeed. It's not good. So then lastly, we've got this super complex Sith plan. Is it over the top complicated? Or is it exactly the right amount of complicated? Yeah, I think it's actually exactly the right amount of complicated. I mean, you're, you are trying to take over the galaxy here. But let me just lay it out one more time sort of in, in like a straight line. So sometime in the past, maybe 20 some years before, um, Jango Fett was hired by a man named Tyrannus. Tyrannus is Count Dooku's Sith name. He's Darth Tyrannus. So Darth Tyrannus hired Jango Fett to be a clone template and presumably impersonated Sifo-Dyas to set up 
the um, the clone army. And we know this in the movie, in the TV show Clone Wars, we find out that before all this happened, sifo was murdered. So the assumption is that Dooku impersonated him to the Kaminoans and set up the clone army. So the Sith created the clone army and hired the template and then also hired him to try to assassinate Amidala so that they can manipulate J- uh, Jar Jar into giving emergency powers to the Chancellor so that he could create, officially raise the clone army. Meanwhile, Dooku, the other member of the Sith duo, started a separatist movement, which he claimed was independent of the Darth Sidious uh, Trade Federation relationship in Episode 1. That this was just, he found out that a Dark Lord of the Sith was running the Senate, and he got the Trade Federation, the Banking Clan, the Techno-Union Army, and the Geonosians to all join a side seceding from the Republic with a droid army to set up a civil war. And the civil war is entirely set up to allow Palpatine, Darth Sidious, to gain more and more individual power and take over the Republic. That is both complicated, but again, feels necessarily complicated and really well executed under the nose of a thousand Jedi who are presumably so attuned to the force that they can sense what's happening in the galaxy and missed all of this. Right. And don't forget, we also had Palpatine tricking uh, Queen Amidala in episode one, basically into making the motion for a no to vote, no con- vote of no confidence in uh, Chancellor Valorum. So now we, we've got like, this has been going on for 15, 20 years and, you know, it's entirely possible that uh, Dooku was leaving the Jedi Order around the time that Darth Maul was cut in half. And, you know, so he was probably already leaning towards the Separatist ways, but then that was manipulated by Palpatine. Yeah, it's entirely possible that his story of starting a Separatist movement was 100% truthful, that he had already you know, had the impression that a Dark Lord of the Sith was running the Senate, was going to form a separatist movement, and then was approached by that same Dark Lord of the Sith and turned to the dark side. Um, But yeah, so it's a really complicated plot, but you can see exactly how they brought all the pieces together to get the outcome they were looking for, and they got it. So now the galaxy is at civil war, um, and uh, the Sith are slowly and quietly gaining power, and the Jedi seem completely incapable of stopping them. Right. So this is a real bummer, Kevin. Sorry. You said that at the end of the last one, and I'll I'll say what I said before. This this trilogy is not particularly uplifting. Um, It bummers out, and it bummers out harder and harder. Uh, All I can say is there's some good Star Wars. There's some pretty good lightsaber fights and space battles and um, Senate debates, I guess. But yeah, kind of a bummer. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we can't end on a low note like this. So so here's the high note is that between episodes two and three, uh, there were clearly gaps in the plot. And sometime after the movies came out, uh, the, the folks at LucasArts uh, decided to put together a TV show called Clone Wars. And Clone Wars is some really, really awesome content. It's an animated show. It was on Disney Plus. It's or it was on uh, Dis- it aired on Disney. It's now on Disney Plus. Um, and, uh, I think that's what we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about next. 
Yeah, and I'll say that some of the cartoons are a little bit trying because they are geared towards maybe a younger audience, but some of the themes are very adult, very mature, and I I think uh, the plot is really intriguing. So yeah, okay, that is a high note. I'll take it. All right. All right, on that note, I love you. I know.